Welcome, everybody, to Secret Sauce, the show where we hear real-time insights from industry leaders. I'm Carly Iacono. Today, I am so excited to be joined by Brandon Eisner, the head of retail research at CBRE Americas. Brandon, you are a wealth of retail knowledge. We are really excited to hear what you have to say. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Carly. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's it's an honor to be here. My pleasure. Now, we could just throw up graphs and talk about stats for, I don't know, eight, 10 hours, but we're not going to. We got to keep this condensed for our listeners. Um, but everyone out there, just know there's more. There's always more retail information and research when you talk to Brandon Eisner. So anything we don't cover today that you as a listener would love to hear about, reach out to me, reach out to Brandon, and we'll make sure you have the information that you want. Let's jump in. Brandon, start with uh, your background and role at CBRE. Sure. So, uh, you know, as Carly mentioned, I'm Brandon Eisner. I'm the head of retail research for the Americas for CBRE. Uh, in September, it'll be my 10th year with the company. And I usually describe my my time at the company as clawing and scraping my way up the, up the ranks. I, I started as a researcher and uh, I, I liked research. I'm, I'm naturally curious about a lot of things. And so it's, it's always been a natural fit for me. And so, uh, and so essentially what I do is I, you know, I, I uh, assist brokers and, and different uh, business lines with, with information and data. And sometimes I get presentations, I, I write reports and basically just try to find the, the ins and outs of retail. And I, I usually tend to be on the side of, I, I like to debunk what I, uh, general, uh, general lazy thought sometimes. And so, uh, I, I, I focus on that a lot, but, uh, but yeah, no, it, it's a, I, it's a great role for me. I I'll, I'll keep it as long as uh, CBRE, uh, wants to keep me in it. So it's been great. I don't think anyone's going to let you go anywhere. So <laughs> glad to hear you like it as well. And that yeah. might be one of my new favorite, uh, phrases, debunk lazy thoughts on retail. I like that whenever there's a contrarian perspective, uh, that's a great way to put it. One of the main things we've been talking about from a positive point on retail over the last few years is rent growth. So let's talk about the reality of what retail rent growth looks like. I know um, we've seen a lot of growth because of inflation, but does that tell the full story? Is it inflation driven or is it something more sustainable? What's your opinion? Honestly, I think it's something more sustainable you know, inflation always comes into everything and, and it's it's gotten more expensive to, to run properties and uh, it's, it's more expensive for tenant build outs, you know, all those things. But really with retail, it's it's really at the very basic level, a supply and demand issue. And so, you know, in the early 2000s and really through the mid and, and later 2000s, we saw this massive swell of retail construction. And a lot of it probably wasn't uh, in line with supply and demand. A lot of it was probably uh, over needed. And so that, that's when we started to hear a lot of that, that dialogue of the U.S. is over retail. But uh, really, since the great financial crisis, the level of new retail development has dropped off a, a cliff, essentially. And, and, and we've you know, been below 1% of new supply every single year since the great financial crisis. And that's come at a time when, you know, there's been expanding retailers. And so uh, it's, you know, the, so this is one of my favorite stats over the last three years, retail, new, new retail space delivered hit a new record low in each of the last three years. And we're likely, we're, we're going to hit another new record low in 2023. And that's come at a time 
when there's still a lot of demand. And so what it's what's happened is we've we've achieved this place where we're in an all time low of availability in retail at four point eight percent. And so, you know, it's it's supply and demand. So uh, so the, the best centers, the, the ones where everyone wants to be, they've really been able to push rents. And so it's kind of been you know, advantage to the landlord over the last several years. And, and, you know, this isn't to say that, you know, people always want to go, well, you know, the, the mall near me is, has a lot of vacancy. Well, it probably always will if, if, if it's a class C mall and it's something that will probably need to be reinvested and redeveloped. But, you know, again, when that happens, that new space will, will go at a premium if it's a great property. And so, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised to see the, the, the good rent growth and especially again in in the prime trade areas it's it's really uh if, if you want to be in that area which of course you do you're going to pay the price and, and it, it's going to be high so i think you hit on all the key points there limited construction expanding retailers supply and demand basic metrics right which are pushing rents up do you have any stats or insight onto the construction? Why the construction is is so um, mitigated over the last few years? Is it cost driven in your mind? Is it lack of available space? Like, what's sort of driving that trend? I think that you know it, it's a lot of that, um, but and in, in, you know a lot of it is is due to the fear of this 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 idea of of e commerce encroaching on brick and mortar retail, and uh, but. You know what we know now is that really, you know, e-commerce isn't going to kill brick and mortar. In fact, that the two work together to make each other better. And and so, uh, when you consider all these factors, and then now, uh, I, I was it, there. There was a REIT call that I was on recently, and they were talking about you know building out a junior anchor on one of their existing sites, and it was going to cost three hundred bucks a square foot to do it. And then they're talking about building out a multi-tenant pad site on one of their parking lots. Now it's going to cost that was going to be $500 a square foot. And so what they said in the call is that there's only a few markets where they could even charge the ask the rents that would cover, that would make sense of that construction. And so you, you kind of hit on it too. It's also a construction cost issue, especially now. And, you know, will those costs regulate? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, labor costs are up. Uh, materials have come down a little bit, but they're still high. So, um, you know, so there's, there's some people that we work with that say, you know, I think we have all the retail space that we have right now. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, what are the centers that need reimagining or redesign or, or up upgrades? And and so uh, so it's yeah, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but it, it's um, you know, th th I think all those factors play a part in in the, the lack of new construction. And and I, and I think that probably at least over the next few years, it's going to be a cost driven thing where which keeps it low i agree and it it sounds like of course this is a negative for our developer clients trying to build new product but right. for retail <laughs> fundamentals overall it really does bode well for uh, rent stability stability over time because the tenants are pushing they're expanding the tenants themselves are so healthy uh, as businesses and companies and they want to find space so I, I do think that the lack of availability is making all of our centers and single tenant properties too even stronger. So great from that side, not so great if you're a developer, for sure. Unfortunately, yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to uh, another interesting topic, which is tertiary markets. So there's been a lot of population shift from the pandemic, and I would love to hear your thoughts on 
Was that temporary? Is everyone moving back to the cities? Or are we seeing these secondary and even tertiary markets really fill out and take hold and become um, really a different population base than they were a few years ago? And how do you think that affects retail real estate? So I think it's more on the long lines of that, that last point you made where it, it, it just it just might be a new reality. And, and data wise, from, from 2019 to 2022, it, it, it's estimated that 62% of net migration within the U.S. went to tertiary markets. And um, that, that's significant when you consider that tertiary markets only make up about a third of the overall population. And now there's a lot of de designations of, of what a tertiary market is. For the sake of my study, I, I took all market, all MSAs over 4 million as the primary markets all MSAs between one and four million is secondary, and then tertiary markets are all MSAs below one million, and uh, and, and so the, you know everybody might have their own definition, but um, and so, so so again, you know, sixty two percent went to these types of markets, and you know this is places like like Bend, Oregon, and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and and you know there's there's many others, and so um, I think a lot of people will stay in those markets. And but that said, you know, you, you hit on something else that was interesting about about, you know, what, is this going to forever dent the larger cities? And actually, a lot of the big cities are coming back in, in, in a pretty big way. You know, the, the legacy cities that uh, the gateway markets that, that had trouble during the pandemic. Uh, I, I ran a set of stats recently um, for uh, restaurant traffic for for seated diners and restaurants. And in a lot of those cities like New York, Chicago, Boston, uh, they're all, you know, in around double digit growth year over year in restaurant traffic across the first seven months of this year. And so, um, and, you know, a lot of the, the darlings of that time are, are starting to lose a little bit of momentum. And, and again, you know, people always want to pit cities against each other. And I, I try not to do that. It, it doesn't have to be right or wrong or good or bad, but, uh, but, but the, the death of those big cities, I think has been way overblown and people still love living there and, and will, make those economic sacrifices to spend $4,000 a month on that one bedroom apartment to live there. And uh, so I, I think we're just in a situation now where everybody has the opportunity to work and live from their ideal, uh, from their ideal set of standards. And, and I think it's great. So Brandon, do you think that this population shift to the tertiary markets is moderating then, or are we seeing it? Do we think it's going to continue at the same pace that we've seen over the last few years? I, I have an I think both sides can be true. I I think that you know we we had a big swell of of population go to these tertiary markets uh, around the three years of the pandemic. Uh, you know, obviously the, the pandemic and the desire to distance had something to do with this. But but again, I think that the the financial part of it is, is a big issue. Uh, you know, at some point people can just decide, people might decide that, you know, paying $4,000 a month for a one bedroom apartment is, is not what they want to do with their money. I think that there's a big shift. I think that we could see more of that, but I don't, I don't think it'll be as much of a shift as it was during the pandemic. Prices certainly have not come down, but uh, yeah. perhaps the, the pace of the migration will moderate a bit. I, I think that's my viewpoint on it. Now with this, Great shift to the, the secondary and, and tertiary markets, 
how are you seeing that play out through retail? Are you seeing increased demand from new tenants? Is vacancy levels change notably? Are we seeing rents increase more in those markets um, as compared to markets that are maybe more stable or losing population? Or has it not been that tangible of a shift yet because it's too new? What are you seeing data-wise? On the rent side, I think it's not been quite tangible yet to answer that. But on, on an availability standpoint, tertiary markets, you know, we, we, again, since, since this is a hot topic, you know, we went back and we labeled all of uh, the markets that we track, uh, you know, secondary, tertiary, primary. And so we found that the tertiary markets, they've been outperforming secondary and primary markets in, in availability uh, for, for the last few years. And well, outperforming, depending you know, if, if you're a landlord, you like that. <laughs> if you're, right. if you're a tenant, right. it, it's a little bit trickier to find space. And, um, and, you know, th there's brands out there that are definitely tr seeking out these, these tertiary markets, even some of these rural markets, uh, you know, Starbucks and, and Chipotle. And uh, th there's a few others that are, that are even developing kind of rural concepts that will fit into these types of areas because they, they see them as ripe for expansion. I think that's so interesting because that's definitely a shift in brand strategy. I, I mean, it used to just be, okay, we have a, an area with very thin demographics. We know there's going to be a, a Dollar General. We know there's going to be a drugstore, hopefully a grocery store, and that's about it, right? And now we're seeing some of these really strong national brands focus on tertiary markets that before would not have even considered it, right? It would have just been an immediate, nope. Um, right. So I, I, I love this. I think it's great to see more involvement and more attention to new and upcoming areas from national brands. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing is, too, is that uh, and the, you know, I don't have access to any data, but narratively, uh, these you know, the, the, the tertiary market stores, they're, they're cheaper to build out. They're they're cheaper to run. And a mm -hmm. lot of times the performance is just as good as their primary market stores because there's less competition and it's uh yeah there's just more uh there's more excitement about uh, about that you know if if you're a if you're a you know national brand qsr and you open up on a corner exactly. of, of new york city i don't think that that there'll be as much buzz as if you open up in a town that you've never been before and so um and you know especially as the drive-through has emerged as just such a big revenue driver for the QSRs. I think that's that's another aspect of it too, which is uh, which these tertiary markets really lend toward that because a lot more people drive. Mm -hmm. And I think because of all of this, sort of the stigma that tertiary equals risk is going away from the investor, from the landlord perspective. We're seeing a lot more demand, uh, even focus on non-core markets from our clients. And I think that just shows you that the the fundamentals are continuing to strengthen in areas that were looked at very different, differently even five years ago. So fascinating shift from our perspective too. I agree. And, and you know, there's there's something else that that I don't hear much talk about, but I, I and I, again, this is one of those where I don't really have any data to support it, but uh, you know, it, think about this. So there's been this big run uh, on on tertiary markets and within that that data is 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 tangible with with population shifts and so if you're if you're an office investor there's really not a lot of choices you know there's not a, a great 30 story office tower in a lot of these tertiary markets if you're a multifamily investor there there's not a great you know 25 story amenity laden multifamily tower in these markets but 
there's a great grocery anchored center in every right. single city over 50,000 people. And if you think about that, you know, the ability to, to, to spread your risk and to be able to enter these markets as, as a, you know, institutional investor, it's, it's really interesting concept to think about. And I don't think it's happened really in the numbers yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw in, just like you said, there's just this interest in these markets turning into actual movement in the market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, lo I love that. It's a great perspective that it's really the only way to access the market in a lot of cases from an investment perspective. Good point. Let's shift gears a little bit and kind of circle back to retail sales, but with a different slant. So we've all seen the policies surrounding student loan payments, and those are going to kick back up um, end of this year, I believe, right? Is it October, September? Well, they're October, October because my October. payments are due yet again. <laughs> so, yeah. After two Sorry. years. <laughs> so, but that's, that's a big number for a lot of people. I hope not for you. But that's a big number for a lot of people. Do you think the the reinstatement of student loan payments will materially affect retail sales? I mean, I think it has to. So, mm -hmm. I, I you know, right before we we um, we jumped on, I, I you know did some last digging for for data and and uh, so so the the student loan balances right now. Are, are you ready for this? One point five seven trillion dollars. Oh my goodness! Wow, 1.57 trillion dollars. And so, what I did a, a few a few months ago is is um oh, I, a couple months ago is is I I did a very rudimentary look at like what that debt service might look like. And so, using very loose calculations based on the total student loan principal and average rate over time, which I, I put at five percent, and then using the average amount of time that people take to pay off a student loan, which is ten years. Somehow I, I'm in year eight and I've only paid down about 20% of my balance. But um, but using all those very loose assumptions, it's about $50 billion that goes into debt service payments every quarter. Wow. Now, if you look at the nominal growth in retail sales since those payments became optional, it's significant. And and granted, that's not the only factor. Inflation's a factor. Right. Um, our friend Henry Chin in, you know, in, in Hong Kong, he talks about the revenge retail factor where people ran out and, and spend in restaurants because they were so, uh, so uh, fatigued from being locked down. But right. that said, I think that we would be unrealistic if we didn't think it was going to have some effect. And so, uh, we're, you know, we have our holiday trends report that comes out um, at early every November, and we're, we're actually looking into that considerably on how it might affect the holiday season. And, and we, we, you know, we've had a couple great holiday seasons in a row. This could be the one that's finally kind of tripped up a little bit because that is a significant portion of, of money that's coming due again. I, I you know, there, there's one report, I think, that said that it's it's 400 bucks a month um, per person that, that goes out. Mm -hmm. I, 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 haven't I forget where that stat came from? But you know, if you think about that, um, you know, if, if someone makes if someone makes sixty thousand dollars a year and, and pays eighteen hundred bucks a month in their rent and everything adds up and that's before taxes, it you know you, you don't the student loan debt service yeah, yeah no it, it's a big mm -hmm. number. And do we think there'll be a lag effect? You mentioned it affecting holiday sales, so that's that's pretty quick, right? That's two months after payments start, roughly. 
do we think we'll see it reflect in the numbers that quickly? This is speculative. Or do you think that it might take a while as people build debt and then say, okay, okay, this is too much. So when will we really see the effect in your opinion? That's a good question. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist, but I think that's a fair statement to say that this, you know, maybe this holiday season will be the last hurrah before right. people kind of, kind of do lock down. And so, um, it, you know, very, I, you know, Richard Barkham, he's the, the head of our you know, retail research, the head of research for, for CBRE. And, and, you know, he's, he's puts out a lot of, uh, a lot of reports on, on the economic uncertainty and, and whether will we see a recession, will we not see a recession, will it be a soft landing? And, you know, he uses the term economic uncertainty a lot. And I've taken that on too, because I, I think that we're just in, in such a bizarre economic climate right now, because yes, there is economic uncertainty, but over that, over that same time, we've had very strong wage growth. We're still at very low unemployment rates. And, mm-hmm. and and households are actually in pretty good condition uh, when you consider in uh, debt service payments to income ratio. Uh, it's actually pretty solid and below long-term averages. So I, it, it could be either. I I, I, right. I, I don't want to put myself out there, but, uh, and I hate giving like the, the nebulous answer, but um, yeah, it, it could be either, but it will have an effect. I think so too. And it, it, like you just said, there's just competing factors here, right? Wage growth was still happening, although it sounds like it's moderating. Unemployment's still low, low, that's slightly ticking up. You know, all these things work together and you can't look at any one thing in a silo, but it does seem like a material shift in spending power for a lot of Americans. So I'm sure you'll be keeping your eye on it and keeping us posted. Oh yes, definitely. <laughs> Let's go to another really hot topic that is forefront in my world of retail real estate, and that is the pending Rite Aid bankruptcy. What I think is interesting about this is this has been pending for a very long time, right? Uh, and then they did a, a rebranding, then they were they sold a lot of their stores. There's been a lot of Rite Aid discussion for, gosh, I don't know, nine years uh, it seems like, but this is this is big. This is real. So they're actually filing bankruptcy. Um, I think there was something connected to the the opioid lawsuits. We won't go too deep into that, but there are, there are trigger points that look like this might be a really pivotal moment for Rite Aid. So if that's the case, and it all goes as it seems to be unfolding, that the brand may not uh, exist in the way we know it. We'll, we'll see. What does that mean for all of their real estate? Do you expect to see the same fervor that we've seen around the Bed Bath & Beyond vacancies that have come up through their bankruptcy filing? Or do you think the demand picture will be a little bit different? Well, you tell me, Carly. I mean, that's the secret <laughs> sauce right there. You're the one with the, with the tenants in the market. Uh, I So, uh, but, but seriously, yes, I, I think that um, I, I think that the, the real estate will have value. So, uh, drug retail uh, is having a lot of troubles lately. Uh, th- there's this uh, data set that SP S&P Global Market Intelligence does where they um, it's this great study on percent chance of default by business type over the next 12 mm-hmm. months. And, you know, for the most part, retail is in good shape. Default risk actually declined as of the most recent data. Uh, but uh, drug retail is, is around it's a little over 10% default risk, which is almost double the next mm-hmm. highest type. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually not surprised by the Rite Aid uh, news, but uh, 
you know, that said, I think a lot of these sites will be highly sought after, right? I, I you know, QSRs, we, we, we talked about that a little bit ago. Um, they, they can't get enough drive through these days, drive throughs these days. And so, um, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these right aids are on, you know, highly visible traffic corners, often with uh, multiple exits and entrances. So there'll be great sites for QSRs. And, um, you know, we, I, I, you've probably seen the same thing. I've, I've seen some incredible concept drawings out there for QSRs with, uh, you know, the restaurant being elevated over a three drive-through concept mm-hmm. or at least a double drive-through concept. So, um, I think, I think a lot of these sites will get jumped on. I mean, what, what, what do you think? <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's going to depend very much on market and the competitive landscape, but I would expect tractor supply discount stores, um, maybe even pickleball. Although I'm really tired <laughs> of talking about pickleball. You never know. It seems to be popping up everywhere. You so told me I wasn't be... allowed to talk about pickleball. I know. I said, yeah, I said you weren't allowed to because I'm tired of it. But it's true. It's true. They might be appearing in writing. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, right? It's kind of like the spirit Halloween. It just it pops up everywhere. And that, that's how I'm starting to feel about pickleball. But um, in all seriousness, I think we don't know. Uh, but one thing we've noticed in retail overall is the flexibility of retailers that we haven't seen in the past because space is at such a premium. So just because the right aid space or square footage does not fit a retailer's prototype or floor plan exactly, because it probably won't in a lot of cases, I don't think that necessarily means we won't see competitive bids on those spaces from retailers we're not expecting because they are flexible and their prototypes sort of across the board right now. So I don't think we know everyone who's going to go after this space, but I do think that it um, there'll be some interesting entrance into markets that uh, you know where they couldn't get space before. Your point about um, about the pop up market, I, I think you started to make. I, I think that could be interesting, you know, because that's been talked about a lot. And uh, you know, in prep for our holiday trends report, I, w- I was asked about this yesterday, and uh, they're asking about pop ups. And it's like, look, I mean, the the malls where the pop ups actually went to be, there's there's no space, there's no space. <laughs> right? Right, and, not and so- there. Yeah. So maybe these, you know, these these pad sites or these you know sites right next to the Great Mall, um, maybe that's the answer. That 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 could be an interesting place for like these you know these Christmas tree shops or whatever. Not the actual Christmas tree shop, but uh, right. you know the, the the holiday themed pop ups. Maybe that is an opportunity for them it's in the interim. I think right until yeah. the the final tenant is chosen. Yeah, it could definitely be a way to boost income in the interim. Yeah, hundred so. percent. Let's watch this unfold. It's another interesting one. Yeah, for sure. All right. I'm going to give you a free question. What is one misconception about retail that you hear all the time? And why is it just simply not true? Take it whatever direction you want. Oh, that's like a, a softball right down the It middle. is. Yeah, um, it's, like, it's a gift. It has to be that the <laughs> brick and mortar retail is dying. And I think I mentioned this earlier. I still hear this from time to time if I'm giving presentations that people will be floored when I say that, uh, that retail availability is at its lowest point ever. And especially from overseas investors, that's actually been really interesting. And this comes from, you know, our, our, our product, our property type, it's, it's heavily exposed to public perception, right? Because uh, you and I, we, we could grab coffees and walk through a business district and look up at the office buildings and, and think, oh, that's a nice office building. But we really wouldn't have any idea of what's going on in that building. You know, same thing with a multifamily building. Oh, it's a beautiful building. You know, what's the occupancy? Who knows? But if we walk through a street retail district, if we had no real estate knowledge whatsoever, we could see immediately 
vacant stores and have the idea that that there's that there's vacancy. And so um, I think that's why it's it's so exposed to public perception and that that can trickle into investors, I think, too. And so um, and that's that's one of my roles is, is like debunking that myth is that no space is really tight. And I know that you see it in your practice and, and all the other all our other colleagues I talked to around the country uh, say the same thing. Absolutely. And let's just dive into that a little bit further before we move on. Sure. What are you seeing in the e-commerce omni-channel retailer? Are you seeing a lot of retailers or do you follow retailers that once were e-commerce only? Are they opening stores? Are we seeing the, the blend? Like, How is e-commerce really affecting bricks and mortar retail, in your opinion? It's you know, there's a lot of brands that are expanding. I, you know, the most famous, I think, are you know Warby Parker, obviously. Uh, you know, Lululemon is another big one. They, they, both those brands are exceptional at managing the multi-channel retail practice. Because uh, you know we we still talk about omni-channel retail, and I that word it's like I hope you can get rid of it soon because it it just means retailing, really. Right. There's there's a chart that I do um, that shows digitally influenced retail sales versus non-digitally influenced retail sales. And so digitally influenced became the dominant share back in 2016. And so that's people that are online researching the product or, or maybe even research the product in store, but then buy it online. You know, that happens a lot, too. And mm-hmm. and you know, we, we did our, our global consumer survey last year, and, and we found that of digital shoppers, people that prefer to shop online, that uh, the majority prefer to return online orders in store. And and, uh, and and then another very large segment of online shoppers prefer to try a product in store before purchasing online. So this idea that the store is irrelevant is ridiculous. And, and, and I think a lot of retailers know that. And especially uh, going back to the question, I think especially a lot of these uh, originally digitally native brands that have been able to build brand online, they understand the power of it, and then they can team up with uh, people like our location intelligence division and, and, and find the exact places that they should open stores. And so they're not going to be opening dozens of stores in a market for their first entry like was done in the 80s and 90s. They'll open key stores that they know that there are people that that are online looking at their brand live in. And so they almost have an advantage to that because they, they can look at that data, they have the data and they can maximize that to almost ensure store success. That is such an interesting point that the retailers already know where their consumers are because they can track where they're based when they're looking at the website. That's wild, that's true, but 100%. very, very interesting point. And I love your quote that omni-channel is retail. It, it's it's the same thing now. We don't have a distinction between bricks and mortar, digital, or omni-channel. It used to be three buckets. I think we do away with all of it because everything is basically omni-channel in some degree or fashion. 100%. Love that. Yeah. Well said, well said. All right, last question. What is a retail trend that you are very excited about moving forward? So I, I, I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm a city dweller. I, I always will be. And so I, I've always had a fascination with, with street retail districts. And uh, the, the one I'm most interested in right now, and we're actually, again, this is another report that, that's within, uh, that, that, that's in the works right now. Uh, it, the idea of emerging street retail districts. So it, we've, we've heard a lot about, you know, news of the, some of the legacy high street districts being plagued by uh, crime and slow sales and, 
Um, most of these stories are completely overblown, by the way. But I, I've been making a point where where I try to check out these these fringe type emerging retail districts. You know, when I, when I travel and and you know where where an upstart luxury brand might be located between a, a beer garden and, and a tattoo shop. Right. It's something where uh, it would have been unheard of you know, twenty years ago. But but they'll go and and you know tattoos aren't inexpensive by the way uh so it, there's a lot of big spenders going into those places but um but yeah i, I think that's really fascinating it, it, it's fun to see brands uh you know know who they are and have no fear whatsoever to go into a, a location like that and it, it can be really exciting to, to also build your brand with with the younger generation as well and so i think it's it's a really smart move and, and it's something we're seeing many times over in, in a lot of different markets so how are you defining this sort of high street or urban retail, whatever you, is it, does it have to be walkable? Is it a certain population density? Like, how are you defining that kind of market? So th that, that's a great question. And this is where my, my arts background kind of <laughs> helps me out. I, you know, we have, we have a set, a designated set of prime retail districts that, that have our, our legacy and go back many years. And we, we keep, you know, prime retail stats on that. And so, so that's one set. And then we basically, I just went around asking folks like you, uh, you know, where, where's the emerging district? You know, where's, where do you, where do you get your coffee in the morning? And so, you know, in places like, you know, Miami and, and New York city and Chicago and LA and Boston and San Francisco, uh, yes, San Francisco, uh, there's, there's really great emerging districts where, um, you know, all the news might be centered on one place. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's, there's a lot going on over here that's getting missed. And um, and so we we ran this study on, on on an index of occupancy, and the emerging districts are, are outperforming the legacy districts in occupancy, and and not even that that will be like a long term thing. Um, again, it's just following the, the the momentum right now. I think a lot of you know emerging luxury districts there's probably lesser rents, there's more foot traffic, and again younger people that might be traffic that might be walking around those areas that they want to uh, identify with, and so. Um, but, but yeah, so that it's, it's, it's kind of an, uh, you know, it, it's a nebulous thing. It's, it's not exactly, uh, uh, one of those things you can officially define, but I think we would all, we could all figure it out. Uh, you know, what, what, what those areas are like when, you know, it's, it's, where's the beer garden, where's, where's the tattoo shop, right. where's the best coffee shop. Um, and where, where are local businesses able to thrive, start up and thrive and have that great uh, organic clientele that they they don't even necessarily need marketing because they're just great at what they do and they're located in that district and you can find you know nodes of this throughout every city and um, you know those are the kind of the areas that that we're thinking about when we do run that study. Those sound like sort of the the hidden gems in every city that you would want to find when you're traveling but wouldn't quite know where they were and then would stumble upon it and be like oh my gosh this is amazing right. So, yeah. Exactly. I think it's great. You're bringing those, pulling them out, bringing them to the forefront and sharing data for our clients and all, all of us at CBRE too, and keeping them on our radar. That's great. Thank you. Well, you have just so many reports, so much research, a lot of great data uh, that we all rely on and appreciate very much. For everyone listening, we'll, we'll put up some links to Brandon's research and reports so you can dive in even deeper. But if you have questions on retail, feel free to reach out to either of us and we're happy to answer them directly for you as well. Brandon, I know you're pulled a million directions. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you, Carly. It's a lot of fun. Anytime. 
To everyone listening, that was Secret Sauce. We appreciate you tuning in and we will see you again very soon. Have a great day, everyone.